All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am with a very special guest today. I have Dr. Richard Sherman on the show. Um, Dr. Sherman received his PhD in psychobiology from New York University in 1973, and then he went on to do postdoctoral clinical training in psychophysiological treatment techniques at the VA hospital in San Antonio. He currently directs both the psychophysiology doctoral, doctoral program at Saybrook University in San Francisco, along with the Behavioral Medicine Research and Training Foundation in Squamish, Washington. His research has been uh, best known for identification of physiological mechanisms causing phantom limb pain and treatment of migraine headaches with pulsing electromagnetic fields. His research has been supported by grants from the NIH, the VA, and the U.S. military. Dr. Sherman, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Looking forward to this. Absolutely. Great. Well, I wanted to, you know, start off just by asking you what, what originally sort of piqued your interest in the field of kind of psychobiology or, or neurophysiology? Um, the, um, there's a huge problem in uh, clinical areas where we can't tell what's causing uh, various diseases, um, chronic pain problems, things like that. So I began looking at psychophysiology as a way to tease out uh, underlying problems. And it turned out that really there's no other way sometimes to figure out what's wrong than with psychophysiological recording. So I got more and more interested in that. And then it turned out that psychophysiological recordings can be used to guide interventions, uh, either th uh, for optimal functioning in uh, coaching in sports or education or uh, clinical areas. So I became more and more interested in uh, interventions that are based on psychophysiological recordings. So I got sucked in deeper and deeper. And um, then um, as I became a professional military officer, uh, the military decided that this was a really good way to assess what was happening with soldiers. So whether I was interested or not, there I was doing it and did it for about 22 years. I see. So that's the progress. before we go any further, can we just kind of break down, um, I guess, sort of what biofeedback is, um, but also just kind of the other, um, whatever sort of biofeedback treatments um, that you've been working with or that you've, you've found efficacy for, you know, as, as your research has evolved? Sure. Um, we have to take this in two parts, though. Psychophysiological recording is a standard process. It's used uh, in research all over the world. It's used in uh, virtually every major hospital system. Uh, in the world. For instance, sleep labs uh, record your brain waves, your muscle tension, things like that. Um, so psychophysiological recording is sort of part A. You use that to figure out what's going on. And then 
you can apply interventions such as biofeedback uh, to help people learn to correct the problem. So biofeedback is a uh, teaching process. It's coaching people to recognize a physiological system that's not working uh, properly, and then they learn to correct it. In other words, with biofeedback, you have a psychophysiological recording in real time. You see what's going on in your body. You learn to recognize uh, patterns, and then you learn to correct them. Uh, a real simple example is when you look at somebody's face, very often you'll see that this part of their face is kind of large, and it's because they keep the muscles around their jaw uh, too tense for too long, and that causes uh, all kinds of jaw pain and then headaches. And it's a habit. There's nothing actually wrong. You just have to get the people to recognize that they're staying too tense for too long, and uh, then to relax whenever they become too tense. And so that you use the signal so that people know when they're too tense. And then um, they learn to habitually uh, relax whenever that happens. In other words, it becomes unconscious. Mm -hmm. so, um, so you, you can use this. Yeah, you can use this for so for kind of uh, dissolving muscle tension. What what other sort of um, physiological mechanisms can we sort of I don't want to say get in the way with, but um, sort of you know self correct and and take control over. Um. So for muscle tension, let's say that somebody has low back pain. Most of the time, you actually have no idea what's causing the low back pain. So a psychophysiological recording of somebody's muscle, uh, muscle tension at different levels of pain can tell you um, what the musculoskeletal uh, component is. In other words, too much tension causing the low back pain. And then you teach somebody to control that. But if part of the pain is due to arthritis, you won't change that component. Um, so uh, muscle tension from jaws, the back, um, uh, problems causing tension, headaches, that's all uh, related to muscles. Another one related to muscles is urinary incontinence. Uh, there's vast numbers of people who have urinary incontinence. Uh, for instance, a great many women don't participate in sports because when they get very active, they squirt. So you can teach them uh, not to. And you can objectively uh, track how well they're doing. So that, that's all muscles. Um, Interesting. So your job, you kind of have to uh, tease out whether you know, a person's problem is caused, you know, by this sort of muscle tension, or if there's like an underlying, you know, inflammatory issue, like That's arthritis right. you mentioned. Um, yeah. What, what about cases, you know, where there's been, say, some kind of injury, say there, you know, some kind of back injury um, that's maybe not healed completely, or, or people are exper still experiencing pain, you know, like chronic pain down the road. Uh, is, is it possible that like part of it is is something that is under 
that can be under voluntary control and then part of it isn't or, or how, do, how do you see that? That actually, I didn't even finish answering your last question about what other things we record. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, if, you, if we want to start with that, well, yeah. We... Yeah, let me finish that. Sure. Uh, patterns of blood flow in the body are very easy to pick up because virtually all of the uh, heat that's coming out of your skin is caused by near surface blood flow. And um, if there's too little near surface blood flow, you get pain. <clears throat> Your limb begins to hurt. Um, so for problems like burning phantom limb pain, that's caused by too little blood flow uh, in the part of the limb that's been removed. So we record things like that. We can figure out how much of burning phantom limb pain is due to a problem with blood flow. And um, then how much isn't? For instance, we can use brainwave recordings to figure out how different parts of the brain are communicating with each other, find abnormal patterns, <clears throat> and teach people to correct it. So one of the things that we have found is that People who have chronic pain very often have very different brainwave patterns than people who don't. So one of the things we begin working on is how to teach people to correct those problems. So what you have is peripheral problems like decreased blood flow causing a lot of the pain. And you have problems uh, in how uh, the pain is interpreted by the brain. So I'm not saying it's all in your head as an imaginary. It's uh, a processing problem that people can learn to correct. Um, so again, you know, there's, uh, we can look at brain waves, we can look at blood flow, uh, we can look at muscle tension, we can look at a lot of stress responses. So for instance, um, when people get nervous, they sweat more. So we can begin to get an idea of what's getting people nervous um, by recording their sweating, their heart rate, things like that, and pick up um, things that make you nervous that you don't realize make you nervous um, until you see these responses. And then we teach people to recognize, aha, that's what's making you nervous. And we can teach people to correct it by helping them breathe better um, or work on their problem. Um, look, a good example is let's say somebody is uh, phobic about uh, snakes. The basic treatment for phobias for things like snakes is called uh, progressive desensitization, where first you have a person imagine a snake um, being in the room, but there's no snake in the room. And when they stop getting nervous about that, then uh, you can bring a stuffed snake into the room. And when they stop getting nervous about that, you can bring a real snake into the room. And you know, you're getting them used to it without their having a stress response. The problem is the therapist and the patient don't know when the stress response actually stops. You do a psychophysiological recording and see when they're not uh, reacting anymore. So that was finishing off your first uh, 
Yes. Your first question, can we go back to the second one now? I'd I love that. Yeah, yeah. So basically, I was, I was curious as far as, you know, how, how you can kind of tease out, you know, whether, whether there's, uh, there's a component, you know, that's under our, our physiological control that we can, you know, modify it with these different biofeedback techniques versus something that, that is more of, you know, a, a biological, like inflammatory issue that maybe Got it. you can't, you know, is there, are there times, you know, where it's kind of both? And yes, it almost always is both. Uh, um, when your body is hurting, your muscles tense up in the area where you've got the pain. So that magnifies the pain, say, due to arthritis tremendously. So by, first of all, finding out that there is a muscle uh, tension component, we can reduce the total amount of pain by helping people control uh, the muscle tension. For people who uh, have processing problems with the pain, in other words, let's say the arthritis is causing this much pain, but you're processing, the way you process the pain magnifies it out to that, we can help them learn to get it down. But we can't do anything about the arthritis itself. We can help them not have as much stress response. So it's, it's always a combination. Of, of different things, but at least you're not going in blind. Um, let's say a coach is trying to figure out why an athlete isn't running as fast as they really should be. We record their respiration as they're running and we find out whether they're breathing correctly and train them to uh, breathe better. <clears throat> but if they have a, a uh, obstructive problem <coughs> um, we can't correct that but we can tease out what's making it worse and very often it's just plain um, breathing problems that are causing the problem um, and a good example is anxiety uh, people who have uh, just plain anxiety all the time they're usually anxious but you can't pin down what's really causing it. Um, for uh, a minority of those people, they habitually breathe wrong all the time, which sets off a fight-flight response, but a very, very low-level one, which makes you anxious all the time. So what we do is record people's breathing problems and if it turns out there's a relationship between poor breathing and anxiety, when we train them to breathe correctly, most of the breathing-related anxiety goes away without any further treatment. So you're not doing psychotherapy at this point. You're correcting the problem by correcting the breathing. Obviously, right. you need cognitive restructuring and other uh, interventions if there are reasons for the person to be very anxious. Right. Do you see it sort of as, you know, that that, if someone is, is physiologically anxious, that it's going to cause, you know, something like anxiety, do you kind of see that as like kind of going to the root of the issue of sort of correcting the physiology and then in turn the psychology will follow or, or, 
yes, very, very much so. But remember that this is limited. It's limited to those people where the anxiety is due to a breathing disorder. It's not gonna uh, have any effect on people who are anxious for other reasons who are breathing perfectly well. Um, but the pain, uh, excuse me, the anxiety goes away right away with these people. It's, it's amazing. Um, once they habitually breathe correctly, um, they simply, that free-floating anxiety is gone. But again, a minority of people, and they have to have that problem. Um, an example of pain going away very, very quickly is with phantom limb pain. If people have um, incorrect uh, muscle tension in the stump, they may have been hurting for 20 years, horrible, horrible pain. If, we if it turns out that the uh, pain they're feeling, which usually is a cramping sensation for people who have a problem with muscle tension, um, as soon as they learn to control that, the phantom pain's gone. So something that's been an agony for uh, decades for people is simply gone with no other intervention. And that's, uh, that's one of the strengths of a psychophysiological recording, figuring out what's going on, and feedback being used to coach people to correct the problem. Right, right. Let's go back to something that you touched on briefly earlier about um, as far as looking at the brain waves. Um, so is that, can you, can you kind of tell me, I think we were talking about that in relation to, uh, it, was it migraine headaches? Um, but what, what sort of um, conditions, uh, physiological conditions, do you see kind of the abnormal brain waves in? And then what do you do about it? Um, th there's two directions on that. One is simply different processing. So not abnormal, just different processing. Um, a great many people with fibromyalgia have, you know, they have agonizing levels of pain. One of the reasons the pain is uh, at an agonizing level is they're processing the information that comes up from the body into the brain differently than other people. <clears throat> so when you see those different patterns of uh, processing, you can help them uh, reduce that and change to more normal levels. That's not something that uh, has been proven in double-blind studies to be efficacious yet. That's research going on. There's much better evidence uh, for problems like uh, ADHD in children with uh, math problems. So if you have a child who uh, simply can't focus and can't sit still, uh, they have a difference in brainwave patterns that you can fairly easily detect and then train people uh, to change. Kids are wonderful about this. So again, find what is abnormal. In this case, we're talking about an abnormal problem, not a processing problem, and teach them to normalize it. 
but you have to make that into a habit. This isn't, you know, you're not sending anything into the body that instantly cures the person. The person is learning to recognize um, an incorrect pattern of brain waves and uh, change them to fix the problem. But then the person has to keep it changed. That's the, the next key point with things like ADHD. Right, right. And is that something, I'm curious actually, is that something that usually requires kind of continual um, practice or, or are there certain, uh, certain times, you know, you could train someone to, to process something different physiologically and then they're able to just, you know, that that's their new baseline. They're able to operate like that from then on well, as <clears throat> a continual practice. Thankfully, there's actually good studies on this. Um, so let's say migraine and tension headaches. Uh, there are excellent double-blind, placebo-controlled, long-term follow-up studies that demonstrate efficacy of uh, biofeedback-based interventions. And in comparison with any preventive medicine, they're at least as efficacious. So um, you've got an initial change. But it turns out that for most people, they need a brush up every once in a while uh, to keep their skills up. If you keep the skills up, you do a lot better than if you don't keep the skills up because the problem creeps back. Right. You However, wanna... you do that yourself. You know, you don't you don't have to come into a clinic for that. Sure. Well, one of the one of the things I, I've just been thinking about lately is, you know, uh, kind of the idea that that you know our bodies and brains are so kind of programmed to to operate the way that they that they are. You know, if someone has been dealing with something for a long time. And, and they're so used to functioning at a certain, in a, at a certain level, um, it seems like very, you know, and then they're suddenly introduced to this new way of functioning. Does there tend to be the problem where people sort of just revert back to the old ways? Um, of course. That's why uh, you have to uh, keep practicing uh, your skills if this is going to be maintained. Uh, otherwise, you may very well uh, revert. Um, also, you'll forget how you were doing it. Um, <clears throat> one, one example would be breathing um, uh, correctly. If, um, let's say that you breathe uh, too quickly and shallowly, <clears throat> that causes anxiety, as I mentioned. Um, your heart, the variability between heartbeats, heart rate variability, tends to be very low for people with a lot of anxiety. Um, heart rate variability affects uh, how your gastrointestinal system reacts so that you can have a lot of anxiety related to intestinal problems. But if you can learn to control your heart rate variability so that you increase it uh, to a, an appropriate level, uh, you can't have certain anxiety re, uh, reactions because the two parts of the body uh, just can't work separately. 
So if you, if you develop good heart rate variability uh, by learning how to breathe correctly or having heart rate variability feedback, uh, the person becomes less anxious. But if you train somebody to have good heart rate variability, there's no evidence actually out there that heart rate variability remains changed when somebody becomes anxious. So you have to uh, apply your skills and practice it. So good assessment, good intervention, it works, and then it doesn't work anymore if you don't practice it for a great many people. For others, they seem to internalize it, keep right going, right on going. Interesting. Okay. So, so your job um, kind of, uh, or someone's job kind of as a, as an applied psychophysiologist, it, it seems like there's a lot of kind of investigational work that is going to go into it, right? To kind of figure out, you know, what, what areas of the body are causing, you know, whatever kind of problems that are occurring. And then specifically, you know, what, what is actually going on? Is that, is that's that, right. You're, you're a detective. Nothing's ever simple. Nothing's ever caused by one specific problem. Real, real people are complicated. They've had problems that have developed over time. And uh, just like any clinician, it's your job to tease it out. Uh, figure out which parts you can help, which parts you can't. Um, However, this is not necessarily a clinical field because you're doing this with school children who can't uh, sit still or concentrate. You're doing it with uh, soldiers who develop back pain um, as they're in uh, combat and combat exercises. You're doing it with ath athletes who uh, simply aren't doing as well as they could. Um, so the military pours many, many millions of dollars a year into optimal functioning training. Um, virtually all of the major Olympic teams have uh, psychophysiological evaluations and psychophysiological type people on their staffs now. There's almost no major Olympic teams that don't have this. And that's spreading into... Um, the professional sports teams and the uh, the college level teams. So this is rapidly, rapidly spreading through the sports world and uh, the military world. So it, don't don't think of this as just a clinical area. Right. <clears throat> Major uses are are outside of clinical, and when it's used clinically. It's used in areas that you wouldn't expect, uh, like for urinary incontinence, where women in, that are playing sports get trained really outside the clinical uh, environment to control their muscles better. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing all this, you have to be careful as you slide over from uh, somebody who's not functioning, functioning optimally into somebody that's broken, where it's a, a clinical diagnosis. If it's a clinical diagnosis, you've got to have a license to do this, you know, a, a state license to assess and uh, intervene with that kind of a problem. 
Right. So you don't treat headaches without a license, for instance, but you certainly do treat uh, breathing problems for a runner with, you know, without a license that's coaching. Sure. What about as far as, you know, you mentioned that the applications that are going on in the, you know, the military and, and the athletic worlds, what about, you know, with, with the business world or, or as far as, you know, all of the stuff, you know, that we know now with neuromodulation and neurofeedback, um, that, do you think that's kind of the next frontier as far as, you know, if, if businesses are able to realize that if we're able to, to you know, get our employees' brains functioning better and, and have more productivity and, and more work output, um, you know, there, there seems to be vastly more money that could be made. What, what are your thoughts about that? Um, that gets to be a complicated question. You're right. You can use brain waves. Very often people in business um, really can't think clearly because they've stopped breathing correctly or they're so tense that they get pain all the time and then they can't function in their jobs. Uh, so it's, it's more than just brain waves. But all of it together, you need to tease out. Um, one of the things that happens uh, in business for people who sit at computers all the time is if they don't take micro breaks, they wind up with all kinds of aches and pains. So um, very often the simplest intervention is just a timer on the computer that reminds you to take a micro break or a little breathing pacer that's up in the corner of your screen so that you remind yourself uh, to breathe properly. But you have to remember that very often there's something causing the anxiety. So if, if um, let, let's say that you're doing translations for people who are deaf, you know, if you're making uh, signs, if you don't take a break, you'll, you'll bust yourself. Microwave, uh, micro breaks are extremely important. But in the business world, you have to always be looking at if somebody is anxious, why are they anxious? You have to begin teasing that out. And most people by now have heard of the toxic boss syndrome, where um, you've got a boss who uh, is not necessarily an evil person. They just don't realize the impact that their style is having on their employees. And toxic bosses have very unhappy people, high turnovers, very, very high levels of uh, sickness. So you don't use psychophysiology just to figure out that there's a toxic boss. You have to retrain the toxic boss. The, um, in other words, if you're going to help the worker, you're going to have to get the boss functioning better. And psychophysiology is a part of that, but so is uh, many, many other techniques. So this doesn't stand alone. It's, in other words, having a breathing pacer isn't the answer. It's finding out why did you need that breathing pacer in the first place. Right. I, something I want to, I, I think, was yeah. really interesting thing that you brought up um, 
what I want to ask you about is like, you know, say, you know, you gave the example of a toxic boss, but, you know, people, you know, there's, there's people all around the world, you know, who, who, you know, all in our worlds who are causing us, you know, stress and they've got all their own issues. Do you see, you know, this um, sort of biofeedback interventions kind of, and especially actually heart rate variability, can that kind of make us more resilient in terms of, of, of actually, you know, being sort of more immune to dealing with, with all of the, the stressors around us? Resiliency is, is one part of it. Teaching people to be resilient means uh, teaching them to recognize when they're having a response to stress and dealing with it. But that's not just psychophysiology. That's things like cognitive restructuring, recognizing that somebody that's trying to get you to bake a cake for them every week doesn't control your life. So you can show somebody uh, physiologically what that's doing to them, but then you need other interventions like cognitive restructuring to help them uh, realize that that person doesn't control you. So it's, uh, again, this is a more complicated process than just um, uh, <clears throat> teaching people to control their responses. So it's, it, the, um, the various interventions work together very, very beautifully. An example is irritable bowel syndrome. Um, there are really no treatments, medical treatments for irritable bowel syndrome that work better than a placebo. When you watch these uh, ads on TV, um, they don't really put up in, in those disclaimers in the back that this works only slightly better than a placebo. Rather than that, you have many decades of very solid research showing that cognitive restructuring used along with biofeedback really is effective for that problem because irritable bowel is usually caused um, by uh, stress, chronic stress responses where you're um, interpreting the stresses, stressors wrong. So again, things like cognitive restructuring, <clears throat> extremely successful at helping most people with irritable bowel when you add psychophysiological evidence of how they're functioning they do even better and even more quickly so biofeedback helps uh tremendously by helping people learn to track their responses you know when things are going wrong right. so yes breathing retraining that helps tremendously um, getting to the root of the problem. That's where psychophysiology strength is. And biofeedback strength is helping people learn to correct it. And right. let, let me emphasize that, that nothing goes to the person. Sometimes you'll hear about people claiming to do biofeedback, and it's some kind of a machine that uh, records some kind of magic blood problems. Um, from outside the body and then 
the machine feeds something back into you to fix it. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. And there's also no evidence that those things do anything. I see. We're, we're talking about a teaching um, regime. Right. And, and it sounds like, I mean, th there's so many applications for this, so many applied and, and clinical applications for this. Um, I think this is a good transition to kind of talk about, you know, your, you know, your role as kind of, you know, a, a director um, of the, uh, the doctorate in applied psychophysiology and the, the masters of, of science in psychophysiology, those program, uh, programs at, at Saybrook University. Um, can you tell me like a little about, you know, who, who might be a good fit for those programs or, or what those programs can offer, you know, people as far as, as career opportunities down the road, since, since it seems Absolutely. like the possibilities are, are really kind of almost limitless. So, um, you know, just like with everything else you've asked, it's a more complicated question than you would think. Um, people who are real professionals in their own area can add psychophysiological uh, assessments and interventions if it's within their own scope of practice, whether it's coaching or education or clinical areas. So they can get really good training uh, in these areas, but it's very, very limited. In other words, they don't have the depth and the breadth to tackle a wide variety of problems. They can only tackle and tackle very successfully uh, a very narrow area. The reason that people need to go beyond basic education in things like psychophysiology and biofeedback is there are so many different aspects to the field. There are so many different areas that you can work in. But if you don't have the depth of understanding of what's going on in the body, what causes different problems, how to do professional level recordings, uh, how to teach people to change them. So this is width and depth. And many people don't need that. But if you really want to go into this in a professional way, so let's say you're a, co a coach, a sports coach, you can learn a little bit about breathing and heart rate variability and help your people to some extent. But if you want to work at the Olympic level or the professional sports level, if you want to be effective um, working with college level athletes, you need to be able to do more assessments than just breathing and heart rate and maybe some muscle tension. And you have to have a much better understanding of what's happening with the body as people do different kinds of exercises. In other words, when are you breaking somebody? So you need the depth and again, the width to pick up these problems. Same thing in the clinical world. So we have um, master's degrees where people get that breadth and depth. Um, we have a general master's in, um, in psychophysiology, and we have, that includes um, coaching, but now we're starting a, an entirely separate master's in uh, 
optimal functioning in sports and performing arts mm. for people who need to coach high-level performers. So these are the people who are getting the skills where they can make tremendous differences. And they're the ones who teach the other folks, the folks with the limited amount of knowledge, whether they're doing something right, how to do it better. <clears throat> and they're the ones where when an initial evaluation doesn't work out, that's the people that you send, uh, you know, the coaches, the regular coaches would send people to their athletes right. to, or their school children to. That um, makes a lot of sense because, I mean, you wouldn't, you know, especially if you're, you know, in charge of a, a pro sports team or, you know, we talked about the Olympics. It's like you wouldn't want just anyone off the street who can claim that they can, you know, do these biofeedback interventions. I mean, you would want someone just as, you know, an employer in some other field would want someone, you know, with, with a degree, uh, you know, from a, a good right. university. It seems to make a lot of sense that with this new field, there, there's, I mean, there's bound to be so many charlatans and there probably already are, you know, people who are making all these false claims about biofeedback and what they can do with it. So the way I see it is, is a program like yours is, is kind of, you know, can kind of uh, clear out some space and kind of direct people in the right direction who, who really want effective research proven techniques. Thank you. You're selling it. <laughs> exactly, uh, exactly the situation. Um, but rather than thinking of charlatans, and there's a huge number of charlatans out there, just as you said, what's worse is there are a lot of people who buy biofeedback equipment and have no training in using it, so they make matters worse or are completely ineffective. So that's a major problem that we have to watch for. And there are some organizations that will certify people to have basic, uh, a basic understanding of how to do very, very limited interventions. Uh, so um, the Biofeedback Certification International Alliance is one, BCIA. If you get enough training to know a little bit about what you're doing in a very limited area, you can get certified where they'll say, yep, you want to be able to do that. And that's a lot better than having somebody who has absolutely no idea what they're doing. Um, but again, the people with the master's degrees are the ones that can sort out what is happening. Right. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example of that. Let's say you've got a musician um, and they're playing an instrument that requires using the fingers like this all the time. If you're a high level musician, you practice hours and hours and hours a day. And by making these changes, you change your brain so that very often two fingers won't move uh, separately anymore. You have to use a, um, essentially an evaluation of the brain waves to figure out what's wrong in the motor strip and teach people to change it. So people who have basic training in areas like EEG and biofeedback simply do not have that level of skill. That's where you need something, at least a master's. 
-hmm. However, the masters is also limited. These are more technical kinds of people. They don't have all the depth and breadth they need to be true professionals in psychophysiology, and they aren't professional researchers. So proving that psychophysiological assessments and psychophysiological interventions such as biofeedback uh, actually work, take people trained at the doctoral level so you have enough depth and breadth of knowledge to do good research in the field. So anyone who's got an idea that um, some kind of an intervention or some kind of an assessment uh, might work um, really can't do it without working with a professional doctoral level psychophysiologist or going ahead and getting a doctorate on their own. So again, for the doctorate, you have even more depth and breadth of understanding, but you're trained in how to do excellent research in psychophysiology. So the techniques you need to do research in psychophysiology are very, very different than the research uh, skills you need for psychology or business um, or really any, any of the other fields. It takes specialized understanding of what the signals from your body are doing, what the equipment's capabilities are, in other words, what are you actually recording as opposed to what is going on in the body? Right. Uh, so that, that takes a doctoral level person. And um, when you have a doctorate in a field like psychophysiology, you can uh, work in a university as a uh, professor. You can um, work in... Uh, various kinds of research facilities or clinical facilities um, using um, uh, this greater knowledge. In other words, you're a, you're a doctoral level person, but this field is not licensed. So we only take people into our doctoral program who want to do clinical work, who already have a master's level license. So they're gonna continue using their master's level license, but adding all of this extra knowledge to it. If they're not working in the clinical environment, like if they're in business or the military or education or sports, uh, then they don't need a license, certainly. But they have this huge depth of knowledge of what's happening in the body uh, so that they can be true professionals helping out. And that's really what you want. If you're going to employ somebody uh, to fix a severe problem in your field, you want somebody with all the depth and breadth that you can get and somebody who's trained in research so that you can prove that it's working. Re yeah. rem remember that um, if you look at psychological interventions and if you look at medical interventions, um, a great many of them that are very well accepted don't do anything. Um, you know, they simply don't. Then research comes out and some technique that's been in use for a decade, you know, was uh, not actually doing anything. So you, you really want to avoid that.
You don't need to add that to your other problems. So you want somebody who uh, is capable of figuring out from reading the literature that exists whether something really works and they can do their own research to figure it out. Right. Let, now let's talk about, let's, I, I want to kind of conclude the, the discussion by kind of talking about what, what, like, where's the future of this field going? You know, where both, both from kind of a, an educational standpoint, it seems like, you know, there's going to be more of these programs uh, that are going to pop up or, or, or at least these different certifications are going to become much more well known about and, and more well respected amongst, I think, like the greater uh, population, um, for lack of a better word. But you know what? Uh, as far as other applications, just where what what excites you about you know where where the field is moving? The field is broadening its reach, so that um, the certification groups right now uh, don't cover all the different areas. But there's also very limited research. As the research grows in depth and in be able to actually prove efficacy, that's what's getting the field to grow tremendously. Um, <clears throat> for instance, um, our early work with um, muscle-related urinary incontinence started uh, as research. People were claiming that you could use muscle tension biofeedback to help people with uh, urinary incontinence, but there was no proof. So we started doing uh, very solid studies that proved what was going on in the body and proved that the interventions, the various interventions worked. So now um, the federal government doesn't consider this experimental and groups like uh, Medicaid um, pay for it and in fact uh, insist that this be accepted in, in other words, this is a, a treatment that you have to uh, pay for and provide. It, it's not completely uh, optional. Groups, um, uh, professional um, clinical groups um, are accepting psychophysiological interventions like biofeedback for specific problems like a pediatric headache as the recommended treatment to start with, not pills. So big, uh, big groups are starting to say, start with this because there's the evidence that this works and it doesn't have the side effects that, that pills have, especially for children. Uh, so that's growing. As the evidence grows, uh, the field is spreading very rapidly. Um, in areas like sports, obviously this is an incredibly uh, competitive area. Anytime um, the owners of a team or the professional coaches get the idea that they can get even a sliver of an advantage, they're going to try it. And then if it seems to work, and then if there's actual evidence proving that it works, they're trying it. So this area is spreading very, very quickly 
uh, through areas that have to perform optimally, like uh, the military and the sports groups. And the chances are that as research um, shows that this really works very, very well, um, they, uh, the field will continue to expand. And um, as there's more research, it's easier to separate out the people who don't know what they're doing with their equipment from those who do, because there are protocols that you can apply that are known to work. And it helps uh, reduce the number of charlatans that are out there, you know, who claim that if you put a magnet on your forehead, that uh, that'll help you run better or something like that. Mm -hmm. Because they don't have the evidence and our field is rapidly gaining more evidence. Right. Um, <clears throat> what we don't have are master's programs spreading very rapidly. So right now there are programs that have concentrations in uh, biofeedback or applied psychophysiology, but not freestanding masters other than the ones at Saybrook. And we have the only doctorate right now in applied psychophysiology. And I think that's going to change. I think there's going to be a lot more master's programs because people are realizing that they can make a very good living from this if they have a master's. Um, so I look forward to more and more master's programs coming up. And then as people want to do research in the area or use doctorates to um, raise themselves in their own professional fields, uh, I'm hoping that there'll be more doctoral programs as well. But that'll be a little slower. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's super exciting. And I, I can't wait to see, you know, what, uh, what ends up coming with the field. Um, Dr. Sherman, it's been a pleasure um, having you as a guest today. I've really enjoyed our discussion. Do you have any resources that you would uh, point people to if they want to learn more either about your research um, or, you know, Saybrook uh, or uh, Behavioral Medicine Foundation? Are there any uh, links or, or uh, places you would direct people to? We can, uh, I can provide a, a website that'll link to these different areas. Awesome. We never mentioned continuing education training. Um, the, there are a number of organizations that provide continuing education, CE, uh, for biofeedback and other behavioral medicine uh, techniques. So one of those is the Behavioral Medicine Research and Training Foundation which is a nonprofit, so it can provide inexpensive training in these various areas. And that's the website link I'd like to give people because on that website, you can get uh, directed to Saybrook's master's and doctoral program and to various other resources. Awesome. So the you easiest way... The easiest way to remember that is biofeedbacktraining.org. Sweet. Awesome. All right. Well, Dr. Sherman, thank you so much again for coming on the show today. 
Um, if you guys enjoyed the show, um, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's Roscoe's Wetsuit. Um, we're also on Instagram at Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. Go ahead and follow us. Uh, you can also listen to the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. So uh, whatever format you enjoy, go check it out. All right. Thanks again, Dr. Sherman. Hey, thank you very much for inviting me to be on. Absolutely.